All right. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Uh, today is Easter, and it's, one of, it's, it's the biggest day for, for Christianity because this is like the Super Bowl of Christianity. This is the day that everybody looks forward to if you're a Christian, and this is central to what we believe. Um, and, but the, quest, the problem with Easter is that even though it's the main deal for us, um, there's a lot of ambiguity that's kind of surrounding it. People don't really understand what Easter is, and part of the reason is because there's so many things that it represents. Uh, it, it does, it, it means so many things to so many people. And we're going to be talking about one of them today because, um, you know, it, like, it doesn't just mean one thing. It, like, for example, you probably heard people say, oh, Easter, that's when Jesus died for our sins and resurrected. Or you've heard people talk about things like that. But that's just one implication of Easter. So today we're going to talk about one. And it's really s- sad, I guess, because um, when it comes to Easter, there's, this, there's so much we want to say about Easter, but we only have 30 minutes to talk about it. So that's why we have to just focus on one thing. So uh, let me kind of take you to the Easter story, uh, Matthew chapter 28. So Jesus died on the cross, right? And they put him in the tomb. After the Sabbath, Sabbath is a Saturday, so this is now Sunday morning at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there's two Marys in this story, went to look at the tomb. You're probably familiar with this story, right? Okay, next verse. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Okay, next. He appeared, uh, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were like, uh, were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And then next verse, this is the main part. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So this is the story of Easter. They expected Jesus to be dead in the tomb. They go to the tomb, and they open it up. They look inside, and the body is not there. And if you read on, you'll find out that his body wasn't just snatched away. He's actually walking and talking and dining with people. Like, he's actually alive. And we're going to talk about more of that in a few minutes. But the thing that I want to really focus on right now is this. What did the resurrection accomplish? Okay, so for example, if I had an Uncle Bob, which I don't, but let's just say I had an Uncle Bob, right? And let's just say by some miracle, after he dies, three days later, he comes back to life. By some miracle. Okay, I'm not going to happen, but let's just say, Right? Does him coming back to life three days later, is 2,000 years from today, are we going to be celebrating the, the resurrection of Uncle Bob? Well, then what makes Jesus so special, right? So what is the implication of this? Why is, Je- why is it so special that Jesus rose from the gra- grave three days later? Like, what's the whole deal with this? What does it mean? Does it mean something to me 2,000 years later? Like, what, what's the deal with it? And so, like I said, there's so many implications. The answer to that question I could take hours and days, and since my mic um, battery only lasts for about a few more minutes, I'm just going to focus on one thing today. Okay, and so what I'm going to talk about today, I'm just focusing on one thing, and you're going to be like, well, I thought the resurrection represented, yes, it probably does, but today we're going to talk just about one thing, just one thing, okay? And so this one thing, you have to, to understand what this one thing is, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, because this issue that we're talking about, what Jesus accomplished by his resurrection, this one thing is actually addressing a problem that lasted, that, that, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, that's the first book. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, we know there's this story called the creation. It's like a poem where, you know, where 
Um, God speaks and the world is created. And then we have Adam and Eve. You've probably heard of that too, right? And you probably heard that Adam and Eve had kids, right? And their names are Cain and Abel. Very good. You guys read your Bibles. Okay, Cain and Abel. Now, there's an issue that happens between these two brothers. Cain and Abel. Cain starts to get a little jealous of Abel because they're doing this thing called you know, giving gifts to God, okay? And God seems to prefer one gift over the other, and so now Cain is kind of getting irritated. Now, we're going to pick up from Genesis chapter 4, the part where Cain is kind of like, oh, this this brother of mine is making me kind of jealous, making me angry, and then God comes down and speaks to Cain. This is is the part I want to focus on. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will, will you not be accepted? Meaning, I know that inside of you there's this turmoil, right? And you're kind of irritated. And if you, if you have mastery over that weird feeling inside of you, everything's going to turn out great. But if you give into that feeling inside of you, chaos is going to come about, okay? So he's like, if you just do the right thing, everything's going to be okay. But if you do not do what is right, sin, and this is one of the first times the word sin is used in the Bible, so we're not really sure. Let's pretend like we haven't read the rest of the Bible. We're not really sure what sin is, okay? So this thing called sin is crouching at your door, kind of like an animal, right? Like a beast or a lion. It's like this thing called sin is waiting at the door, and as soon as you open it, it's going to jump right in, and it's going to cause havoc. Um, It desires to have you, but you must rule over it, okay? So whatever this thing called sin is, it's about to create some big chaos, Okay, so let's pretend that we don't know what sin is, okay? So let's see what happens. Next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, Abel, hey, bro, let's go out, you know, to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first murder that's mentioned in the Bible. Only four chapters into the story, and we have the first death. Okay, so whatever this thing called sin is, it actually caused the first murder, this force called sin caused the first death, okay? Now, this is really important. Uh, you guys probably are like, what does this have to do with Easter? It has everything to do with Easter, okay? But what, uh, this is the first use of something called death as a weapon, meaning Ab- Cain didn't like the situation he was in, and he used this thing called death, and then he got a result that he desired, meaning my brother's in the way of me being accepted by God. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use this tool, this weapon called death, so I could get him out of the picture, and now we're a happy family. That's, that's what's happening here. So Cain uses death as a weapon. Okay, now a few verses later, we see that Cain had kids, and those kids had kids and so forth, right? Okay, but b- before we go into the genealogy, and that's important too, God, shows, God basically comes to Cain and says, Cain, what you just did, that was wrong. I even warned you. I said the sin thing is crouching at your door. You need to overrule it, but you couldn't. Okay, now, what are we going to do about it? And so God punishes Cain. And then Cain seems to be like, okay, the punishment is pretty bad, but the implications of this punishment is even worse. So so I want to show that to you right now. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from this land. That means you got to get out of here, and I will be hidden from your presence. Now listen to this. I will be restless, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So at first, death, Cain used death as a way to control the situation so he'd get what he wants out of it, right? He benefited from it, Abel not so much. But what he discovers is this thing called murder, death, it turns out everybody else in the world has access to it too. 
he realized that if he were to step out and wander around the earth, there might be somebody that he might come across that might want to bring death upon him. So not only did he use death to get what he wanted, now he realizes that he's afraid to go to certain places in the world because death might come to him. Okay, so all of a sudden, he is being controlled, meaning I don't want to go here, I would rather go there because over there, there might be death. I want to go over there, not over here, because here there's death, I'm going to go over there. So death is somehow now controlling the way he lives his life. He's living in fear. Okay, are we, are we clear so far? Now remember, I said Cain had children, right? Now, from Cain, which was bad, we go down a few generations and we come across one of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren. His name is Lamech. Okay, and now Lamech is one of the first people in the Bible where we actually see who has multiple wives, and this is how that story goes. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, those are his wives' names, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. So imagine this guy named Lamech, he's like reclining on this couch and he has his two wives and he's like, ah, it's like, you want to hear me brag? Well, here's my bragging story. I killed a dude the other day because he kind of bumped in, he wounded me, so I killed him, right? Now we see death as a tool, as a way to gain power. Okay, so do you see the progression of this thing? Started with sin, whatever that thing is, right? And because of sin, death was introduced into the story to get what he wanted, but he eventually discovered that some people could kill him, so, you know, right? And now, death is used as a tool, as a weapon, to gain power. And so from this, okay, death becomes a weapon that people use to get what they want. So here, here, this is what I want to say here. Death becomes the ultimate weapon for gaining and maintaining power. So imagine this. If you don't want to do something, somebody could come to you and say, you have to do what I told you to do. And you're like, no, you're not going to make me. It's like, well, you're right, I can't make you. And then you go back and forth, back and forth, and eventually somebody pulls out a gun on you, and you're like, okay, I'll do what you want me to do. Why? Because we're controlled by death. We're afraid of dying. And so for a long time, from the very beginning of human history, we have people who are stronger than other people, typically men who are stronger than other people, who are bigger, has bigger muscles, right? And they're able to gain power because the other people are afraid of being beat up by this guy, right? And then eventually that becomes a clan, a clan of people who are very strong, and so the other clans are scared. And this clan eventually becomes a nation, and this nation becomes an empire, and so, basically, if you want to be the most powerful person in the world, all you have to do is make sure you're stronger than the people around you. The person with the biggest muscles, the person with the biggest gun, the person with the biggest sword, the person with the biggest whatever, becomes the world power. And everybody else suffers for it. And that's how empires are formed. That's how war works. A war is basically saying, I want something, and I have bigger you know, I have, I have a bigger something than you that I could destroy you, so give us what we want. And they go to war, and they win, and they take their stuff, right? So that's how the world started to get, so from the very beginning of the Bible, we see this evolution of death being used as a weapon, right? And because people are afraid of dying, people started saying this. They started saying death has a stronghold on us. This is a very common saying back then, saying like death controls us. Death has a stronghold on us. I'm doing things that I don't want to do. Why? Because of death. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of suffering. I'm afraid of doing all these things. So empires always use this one tool. They're not that creative. They always use this one tool, which is death. I have the power to bring death upon you, and therefore, you have to do what we tell you to do. 
And so they gain power by death, using death. But not only that, they also use death to maintain power. So now they have this big empire. They're looking over everything, and they see a small group of people starting to rebel, and they say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to kill them. Or let's just take their leader and kill that leader, and maybe everybody else will step down. And sure enough, that's what happens. Death is used as a way to, to oppress people. It's the way that they use it to control people, right? But then something interesting happens. You see, because in the Bible, the main character is basically God, but it's God and his people. And in this part of the story, in the book of Genesis, we have a guy named Abraham. And God is working with Abraham to restore the world, right? And then Abraham has a family, and his family has more families, and the group gets bigger and bigger and bigger, until one day we find, in the next book of the Bible, that's called Exodus, we find this people of God living in Exodus in the middle of a kingdom or an empire of Egypt. And this is how that story starts, Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. So God's people, they know how to multiply. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and because so new, uh, in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So now we have, in the middle of this empire, people of God are starting to expand in population. And then this is what happens to Pharaoh. Look, he said, this is Pharaoh speaking to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become more numerous and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So all of a sudden, remember, he used death to create his empire and now he's in a place where he's like, there's a group of people here that's going to take my empire away from me. So you know what I'm going to do with them to make sure that they stay down there and not up here? I'm going to use death as a way to control and maintain my power. So what does he do? Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepherd and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on, deliver, on, on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. Again, using death as a way to maintaining power. Kill him, and if it's a girl, they're no threat to us, so yeah, let her live. Now, here's the thing that God does in this story. You see, up until now, we see these world powers gaining momentum because of this one weapon called death, right? All of a sudden, God does something really strange here. Out of God, the Pharaoh's attempt to suppress and maintain his power, out of that, by, by trying to kill, you know, by, by using death, from his efforts of trying to kill these baby boys comes Moses which actually ends up saving them. And this is like the biggest twist in the story. The next slide. Basically, God took their attempt to kill and turned it into a source of life. Okay, this is like a big twist in the story. Up until now, people used this one tool, this one weapon called death to, to do whatever they wanted, to get their way. And all of a sudden, God uses that very tool that they were using to, to get their way. And God used, the, out of that came Moses, who actually turned the empire upside down. And so people are like, no way, this is crazy. Like, what, like, like this God does some pretty crazy stuff. What, what, what else? And so they started talking with each other, these, these Israelites. Like, God saved us. And it was in the middle of that empire, and death had no control over God. God, it's almost like God was above Pharaoh. And then they started talking about, like, imagine a world where death has no stronghold on us. What would that look like? What if somebody threatens us with death, and we're like, our God is bigger than death. We're not, we're, we're not afraid of that. That's not a threat to us anymore. The world only has one weapon to suppress us, which is death. And what if that one weapon has no effect on us? What if, 
what if we lived in a world where God somehow magically made it so that death doesn't affect us anymore? And they're like, yeah, that would be really cool. And then eventually, around the middle of the Bible, around the book of Isaiah, a prophet came up and said, guess what, guys? You know that thing you've been daydreaming about, about how one day that death will have no stronghold on us? Well, I, a prophet, am here to tell you that that's actually going to happen in the future. That one day, this guy named Messiah is going to show up. And he's going to make it so that death no longer has a stronghold on you. And they're like, really? He's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you mean the greatest weapon that the world has ever known to suppress and control all these things? You're saying that one day, that one weapon is going to be like a blunt sword. It has no effect on us? Like, yes, that's going to happen one day. But since then, there's been empire after empire after empire. There was the Syrian empire who came in the land and destroyed people, raped women, did all these things. Then came the Babylonian Empire. And then came the the Persian Empire. Then the Greek Empire. And then the Roman Empire. And each one greater than the one before that. And in the greatest empire called Roman Empire, in the midst of that comes this character named Jesus. And Jesus tries to work with everybody to fix the system. But in the process of that, the exact thing that we, so predictable, not that creative, so that what the enemy does is they kill Jesus to suppress, to maintain their power, they kill Jesus. And then we go back to Matthew chapter 28. Now let's read it with those eyes now. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Next slide. Oh, there we go. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And then... His appearance was like the lightning, and his clothes were, were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, before I move to the next verse, I highlighted a different, I highlighted a different word to, in the next verse because in the next verse, there's, some, there's this phrase there that we kind of overlook every time we read through the Bible because it's like, oh, of course. Okay, but I want you to take a look at what this says, and then I'm going to explain to you the significance of it, okay? It says, The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Now, why do you think the angel said Jesus who was crucified? Do you think, like, if he didn't say who was crucified, he's like, don't worry, you're looking for Jesus. And do you think the women are like, I mean, which Jesus are you talking about? Like, like the Jesus the carpenter or Jesus the, the, you know, like, no, it's like, you don't have to be specific, but why does the angel say Jesus who was crucified? It's because the word crucified has a whole history behind it. And the angel is reminding the woman the significance of the word crucified. Now, let me explain to you really quickly what that means. Crucifixion was a method of killing somebody, executing somebody, that's done by a specific group of people, the Romans, right? Who was, and that form of death, execution, was reserved for a specific group of people, mainly people who tried to start an uprising. And now, but the people who wanted Jesus did were not the Romans, it was the religious rulers of, of, of Israel. Now, let me kind of explain that to you. The whole nation of Israel were ruled by a small group of people. And these people were called the Sanhedrin. They, and inside, you know, these, these are religious, political people. These few people, they were really, really rich. They controlled the economy of Israel. They controlled the government of Israel. They controlled the religious culture of Israel. They, they controlled a lot of things. And they took most of the money for themselves. So much that there are people who are starving right around, their, right around the corner and they, they thought nothing about, about it. 
This is why, by the way, when Jesus is in the desert and he feeds 5,000 people, people show up, even though it's miles and miles away, because these people are hungry. Because there's these people who are grabbing everything and holding on to everything, and they're making the rules based off of what they think that they could, so that they could benefit from it. He doesn't really care about everybody else. Okay? Now, these people see this Jesus movement happening, okay? And they're like, okay, here comes the Jesus movement. We've got to do something about it. We've got to stop it. We want to kill him. But here's the twist, another twist in the story. At the time, the Roman Empire oversaw that whole area, and the Romans took away their right to kill anybody. So if these people, these Sanhedrin people, if they wanted to kill Jesus, they had to get the approval from the Romans. So Romans were the big empire of the day. Locally, we had these religious people who were trying to suppress Jesus, right? And so what they did was the Roman Empire and these people, they got together, they shook hands and said, let's kill Jesus together. So we're not just talking about one big empire who's trying to suppress Jesus. We're talking about the local power also who is trying to suppress Jesus. They're both trying to use the exact same tool, which is called death, to maintain their power. That's what it means to be crucified. So Jesus was crucified. He was killed because these world powers were trying to keep him down. And they were using the power of death to control the situation, to maintain their power. But what happens? The angel says, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lays. What is he talking about? The angel is talking about this. He's talking about resurrection. Resurrection. Now, this is not resuscitation. Okay, resuscitation is basically saying, here's Jesus, he died. Three days later, he was brought back to life, meaning if this was his life before, he might have died, but he's back to where he was before. The same guy who died is now here again. Resurrection is different. Resurrection is, here's Jesus, he dies, but when he comes back to life, he's even greater than he was before. It's like a new life. Like, if you read the other gospel, the other biography accounts of Jesus, you'll discover that he's wearing all white, so maybe your, your clothes change too, right? But he's also able to appear and disappear. He's able to walk through walls. He has those holes in his hands, and he's able to, you know, he's able to do much more than he was before. Resurrection is not just more of the same. Resurrection is more of the same plus more. And so what happens here is this. The world uses death to control outcomes. When they do that to Jesus, he comes back on the scene again three days later, but this time he's stronger than he was before. And so they're like, wait a minute. We used the only tool we know how to use, which is death, to control everything. Okay, we used it. And when we did it, the enemy, that's Jesus, came out stronger than before. So this is not a good thing for us. It's like the more we knock him, it's like a boxing match when you knock somebody down, he gets back up, but then he's like twice as big, right? So you knock him down again, he comes back up, and he's twice as big after that, and you're like, maybe I should stop knocking him down, right? I mean, that's what's happening here. They're like, when we use the only tool that we know that works for us, for some reason, when Jesus, we do that to Jesus, he actually benefits from it and it actually makes us look weaker. Ooh. Now, in the first century, these people who follow Jesus, they listened to every word that Jesus said. They studied the, his words and what they discovered through his teaching was that he said, the power that brought me back from the grave, you also have that power too. So they're like, wait a minute. Are you saying that if these people knock us down, that just like Jesus, we're going to resurrect? Now, according to Jesus' teaching, it's not three days later. Jesus said that when you die, you'll come back on my second coming. So, you know, right? But he's like, 
wait a minute, the greatest weapon that the world has against us has no more sting to us. It doesn't hold us down anymore. In other words, death no longer has a hold on us. They could threaten us with death and we're not afraid anymore. Oh my goodness, this is a game changer, right? You know what that means? Sin has no control on us anymore. Oh my goodness, this is like, so they looked at the resurrection and they looked at themselves and said, this is great news. The death has no control over us, right? That means that we are able to do whatever we want. Now, let me ask you this, okay? If you knew that you're indestructible, what would you do tomorrow? What would you do today? Now, some people are like, well, I'll go rob a bank because, you know, right? But it turns out this resurrection power rests only in the followers of Jesus, meaning these are the people who have devoted themselves to doing the right things, loving on their neighbors, caring for the people. When God gives them a mission to do good things in this world, you do it, right? But up until now, you had the fear of death holding you back. I, I want to go and reach out to the people who, who need the help that, they, you know, that, that they've always wanted, but, but I'm afraid of going there because what if I starve? Oh, there's a person over here who's hungry. I want to give him what I have, but, what, but if I do that, what would happen to me? I, I, might, be, I might end up being poor. And now they saw what happened in Jesus, and they're like, wait a minute. We're not afraid of death anymore. We could fearlessly submit to God's purpose for us. So what people in the first century discovered, these followers of Jesus discovered, is we have nothing holding us back now. We could go and fearlessly do the things that God has called us to do. And the things that God calls to do are usually good things, not rob a bank, right? So they're like, this is so cool. Like, if there's nothing to fear, what God-ordained thing am I going to do today? And these are the questions that they asked in the first century. This is why it was good news to them. Now, now but, there, but it turns out, okay, all these Christians went out. And if you compare the lives of the disciples before the resurrection, after resurrection, before the resurrection, they were hiding in a room hoping that the, the officials won't come and arrest them. After the resurrection, they're out there boldly preaching the gospel. They're boldly out there trying to heal people, caring for people, reaching out to the people who are taboo, you know, like the people who are shunned of society. They're like, hey, let's come and hang out, you know? And they're all of a sudden these fearless, brave people who are doing amazing things, making the world a better place. Wow, right? But it turns out there is one Christian who was actually a leader who didn't get the memo. I mean, he knew that Jesus died and rose again, but he's not living this life of bravery, and he's, not, he's living this life of being, like, scared. And his name is Timothy. And Paul, his mentor, looks at Timothy and says, why are you scared? What are you called to do, Timothy? Timothy's like, well, my, what God has gifted me to do is teach. I want to teach people about Jesus. Like, well, why are you afraid? Because I'm afraid that if I teach people about Jesus, they might judge me, they might treat me bad, I might suffer for it. And then so Paul writes Timothy a letter and says, have you forgotten? Here, here, here's an excerpt from that letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I remind, I remind you to uh, fan into flame the gift of God, meaning God is giving you the gift to teach. Okay, so that's the gift that you have. And I want to make sure that that fire is lit really bright, which is in you uh, through the laying of my hands. Meaning I prayed for you, so I know that you have that gift. Okay, so it's not an issue of I'm not gifted to to do these things. It's an issue of why aren't you using the gift that God has given you? For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, meaning you, if you have a calling from God and you know that Jesus died and rose again, you shouldn't be scared. You don't have the gift of timidity. You have the gift of bravery, right? But it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. It's like you are able to do amazing things and you don't have to be afraid anymore. 
And Tim's like, oh, but I'm kind of scared. I don't know. What if I suffer? And then, you know, Paul goes on this little rant about like, well, come on, I need to remind you of some really important things. And he gets to verse 10, and he says this. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, meaning Jesus, we saw Jesus. He's, he's alive. Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and Im- immortality to light through the gospel. This is what he's saying. Have you forgotten, Tim? Have you forgotten that Jesus overcame death? The greatest weapon that they have against you no longer leaves a mark on you. So what are you afraid of? At this point, Timothy's like, you're right, what what am I afraid of? Now, Paul the Apostle does something really interesting here. Because up until now, we're talking about literal death, right? We're talking about people using death to control you or your fear of death controlling you, right? And all of a sudden, Paul says, but if death is the greatest weapon in the world against you, right, then suffering, there's like a rank of things you're afraid of. There's death and there's suffering and there's all these things, right? He's like, if death is not a concern for you, then everything else on that list should not be a worry for you. And so, right, we're talking about other people killing you and stuff, but now what Paul does is that he brings that into more on the common life level. He says, that relationship that's falling apart, you know you're wrong, but why can't you get yourself to say I'm sorry? It's like, well, because I'm afraid that, that, you know, like, it might be awkward or I might, you know, it might get worse or whatever. And then Paul would say to you, Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus has conquered death. So whatever it is that you're afraid of should not mean, it shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't be as bad as that. So why don't you go and say I'm sorry? Or maybe there's something happening at work that you're like, this is just not right, and I need to speak up, but I don't want to because I'm scared. Paul will say, what are you scared of? Oh, I, I don't know. I might, I might lose my job. It's like, well, Jesus has conquered death, okay? And you would say, you're right. I'm not afraid anymore because if he could conquer death, then I'm sure he could conquer this. And so you go and do what God has called you to do. You see, this idea of Jesus conquering death is not just in the level of nations taking over other nations and you being threatened to do certain things. It's also the thing that propels us to do the right thing in our day-to-day lives. And the thing about this story is, about Timothy, is that I could kind of relate to it. And I'm just going to be a little bit vulnerable with you for a second. But um, what happened was a few, like a, like a week or two ago, I, I couldn't sleep. And the reason, and, you know, my wife and I were talking about why, why can't you sleep? Are you anxious about certain things? Are you afraid of certain things? And we did a lot of, like, digging. And what we discovered was this. You know those moments every once in a while, you get into this moment where reality hits you? If it's not even reality, it's something in the future that you don't, that you feel like it's, gonna, it's, it's approaching. And, and you, you assume the worst about it. You know what I'm talking about? I'll, I'll explain to you. I'll be more specific about this. A few weeks ago, I was sitting there and I was thinking about our church and how much I love this church. I love you and you guys are, you know, and that, how we're a portable church. That every, every morning, uh, people come in and they set up these lights and, this, you know, and they come and practice and they wipe down the tables, they set up the signs outside. There's a lot of work to being a portable church. Yeah, Ricky sweeps outside and looks beautiful, right? Yeah, do a great job. But then I thought about this. What would Westlight look 20 years from now? The average age of, us, of this church is like in the 40s and 50s, okay? And so 20 years from now, most of you would be retired. Most of you would be too tired and too weak to carry heavy signs and wipe down things and sit up heavy speakers. And I thought, 
Does our church have a future? Would my kids have a church to come to if we don't grow our church in the younger area, you know? So what if we don't get any younger people in our church? I started worrying about this stuff, right? Like, what if people stop giving? You know, what if people stop um, helping set up? What if they're like, you know what, Cots, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm so tired. I can't wake up on a Sunday morning, uh, and I'm just going to throw in the towel. Uh, I'm just going to show up when service starts, maybe 10 minutes after service starts, right? And I, was, I started to worry about this stuff. Like, does this church have a future? And I started worrying, and I started like, oh, no, is everything going to be okay? And I think I started getting really, I started to have the, these, like, anxiety attacks. I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> right? What am I going to do? Uh, like, you know, um, Lori is going on sabbatical starting tomorrow, and, and I'm like, 20 years from now, is Lori going to be retired? Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen without Lori, you know? And so I, I started freaking out, and then, and then it was at that point. Now, early on in my faith, somebody challenged me, you need to start memorizing scripture. Trust me, it's going to help you in the time of times of need. And, you know, there's a lot of verses that are running through my head, and all of a sudden, this one verse came to my mind, right? And, and, and actually, several verses came to mind, but they all had to do with this very same idea, that Christ has overcome death. So what are you afraid of? Sure, maybe 20 years from now, now maybe the church will shut down. I don't know. Maybe it'll be, you know, whatever. Uh, maybe we'll find a solution for some of the issues that, I came, that, that popped into my head, right? But Jesus has overcome death. So what am I worried about? I could come every Sunday and do what God has called me to do with all my heart and without worrying about the future because Jesus has overcome death. The greatest weapon that they could throw at us, he's taken care of. So why am I worried about everything else? And so the question that Paul is asking Timothy and the, the question that Paul will be asking me today and the question that he will be asking you today is this. Jesus conquered death. What fearless act of God will you do today? That's what Easter is about. That Jesus, when he resurrected from the dead, he came out stronger. And basically at that point, he said, death has no hold on you anymore. He, death can't control you anymore. If you're called to go to some different country, you don't even know the language, right? And you're afraid of it, Jesus would say, remember, I overcame death. There's nothing for you to worry about. If there's somebody that you need to confront, you're like, this relationship is kind of weird, but I need to tell you what I'm feeling right now. I'm afraid. Should I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? Not, I don't know what, you know. Jesus would say, I overcame death. What are you afraid of? Everything's going to be fine. If you need to restore some kind of brokenness in your relationship, or if you have to choose family over work sometime, and you're like, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should do this. Jesus would say, don't worry about your work. I've overcome death. Nothing for you to worry about. Resurrection you see it all around you all the time. You see it every time somebody steps out in faith to restore a relationship. You see it every time somebody steps out in faith and says, I choose to do the right thing over the wrong thing. When somebody is fearlessly doing the thing that they're supposed to do because God told them to do it, and they're doing it, and they come out with a great, in a great result, that's the resurrection at play today because Jesus has overcome death. Now, I want to close this time by showing a video that really explains uh, what, what I'm trying to uh, explain. So let's take a look at the screen. Can I be honest? At times I wonder if it's not real. Just stories, myths, fairy tales. That it's just a book 
a way to control the simple-minded. But only those who don't think would follow so blindly. That if there is no proof, there's no resurrection. But here's what I forget. There's more than one way to know something's true. Not because a book says it. Not because of a whim or misplaced trust. There's no physical evidence of love. How can I prove joy? I will never convince you that I was once blind, but now I see. Because I've seen the resurrection. I've seen it in a mother's comfort. I've heard it in my child's laughter. I've felt it in an embrace. I've tasted it when I enjoy a meal with friends. The resurrection isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that happens every time we choose family over work. Every time we choose to serve. Every time we sing that song, or we tell that story, or a life is transformed. That is why we gather. That is why we sing. That is resurrection.